Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The uncanny power of the runaway cult movie Parasite is partly that it comes from Korea with subtitles. It's a faraway mirror of what you know instantly is our American condition, too. Maybe a universal affliction by now of yawning gaps in class and wealth and entitlement. In a financial order that is owned by an almost speechless, maybe clueless 1%. This is, we know, impeachment time in Washington and the news business. We're picking up instead this hour on the understory being told in screen culture. In the case of Parasite, the story is more interesting for mixing movie genres. This is a social comedy of two families before it turns sour and then sharply into a horror show. Our guest, the film critic Ty Burr, noted in his Boston Globe review that Parasite is by turns hilarious, terrifying, and brutal. But it's a coherent whole by the end. The writer and director, Bong Joon-ho, is new to me, but you feel immediately his gift for cutting to the core of our predicament at the start of a presidential year that's still being defined. I asked Ty Burr how he did it. Bong Joon-ho, the filmmaker who created Parasite and who is sort of the closest thing, I think, at this point to a Hitchcock we have making movies in terms of creating these visions that are very, very constructed and then put together to put an audience in a vice that's both entertaining and disturbing. Uh, He's been making movies for quite some time now. Many of his movies have a fantastic, almost sci-fi edge to them. What's interesting about Parasite is that, despite the title, it's his least fantastical movie and most realistic movie in years. A genre-confused movie. It's a comedy. It's a social... Analysis in a way, it's a horror story, and yet it leaves you somehow, it left me breathless with a satisfaction that he'd nailed something. He's told us something about our, our world, our divided, alienated, hostile, almost hopeless social scene, divided by money and class. And he does it also without getting angry. It's not a whining movie. Oh, no, but I think that there is a a rage underneath that's propelling it forward. But he is, above all, a satirist. And satirists, the classic satirists, are always fueled by rage. I mean, think of Jonathan Swift. Their gift is to not let that rage tip over what they're doing, but fuel the humor to open people's eyes, which is what Parasite does. It's a movie that leaves you with not a message, but a feeling. And sadness, but that he's read us and spoken to us, given us a clue. Almost a keynote, it would seem to me, for the 2020 campaign. We're in a trap, an economic trap, a social trap. Uh, Is that too political to read? No, I don't think it's... uh, In fact, I think it's a movie that's read extremely politically in Korea, where the social class hierarchy and inequality between the haves and the haves-nots is even more 
strikingly disparate than it is in America, Hmm. so much so that it's reached crisis proportions. Upstairs, downstairs, two families. It is about a poor family that um, is living in a sub-basement in the slums down by the river who've got a certain amount of cons going on just to get by. And the son gets a job as a tutor to the daughter of a rich family. The father is a tech CEO of some sort. And then his sister gets a job as, um, you know, an art therapist to the rich family's young brother, but the rich family doesn't know that they're brother and sister. And then the father gets a job as a chauffeur, and then the mother gets a job as a housekeeper. The entire poor family has moved in to this rich family's house, with the rich family not understanding that they're all related. They think they've just got four separate servants. And that's when things start to get really crazy, and I don't want to give away some of the film's surprises, but let's just say there's a whole other level to um, the exploitation and using and being used. And the parasites are not necessarily who you'd think. Or maybe everybody in the movie's a parasite. The definition keeps changing. It's a farce. Uh, It's a social satire. It's a tragedy. It's a laugh-out-loud comedy. It is many, many things. The poor family is wily, indomitable in a certain way, not perfect by a long shot. Nope. The upstairs family are, above all, sort of feckless, almost unexplainably gullible, naive. Yes, especially the mother. She is almost touchingly um, naive until you realize that she's in a position of power over all the people working for her. And I love how the wealthy family idolizes anything American to the point of blithely renaming their servants with American names. So (laughs) the son becomes Kevin and the daughter becomes Jessica, and they're expected to answer to those names. So the entitlement and the sort of assumption that what they're doing will be accepted and is right by the rich family is breathtaking at times. And and again, a tightrope of comedy. Did it have to be a Korean film? So strange that this commentary on inequality should come to us from Korea and fit us like a glove in a way. American pop culture hasn't... um doesn't do satire very well. It does parody, it does comedy, it does farce. But satire has, by definition, has an edge of cruelty to it. I think the great satires do. I feel like the American entertainment industry feels that that kind of kills the sale. We're too profit-oriented. You know, we, we don't want to actually upset people. And when I think about the films of recent years that have dealt with the working class and the underclass and, and people who hmm. you know want to be working but don't, they are dramas like last year's Leave No Trace, like Winter's Bone, both those movies were made by Deborah Granick. Uh, these movies are very well made, but they don't address what Parasite does, which is the conflict between these social classes. You don't see the class war that often in American films or American TV. I mean, we were also talking about the show Succession, uh, which is a huge hit on HBO. And it's a satire in the classic sense because it exposes this wealthy family who mm. uh, media owning family with a measure of glee and cruelty. But you don't see the working class in that show. You don't right. you know, see the underlings, although occasionally you do. The interesting thing about Parasite is it puts the conflict right out there in the open. And I mean right out there in the open. Right. And the line that recurs is everything's a metaphor. But the movie refers to metaphors. It plays with metaphors. But it is a metaphor of a 1% society, a split-level radically unfair and getting worse economy. And I was so relieved that it made more sense than the presidential campaign has so far. (laughs) Yes. What is it around that issue 
that so troubles us, but we can't seem to level about. You know, I was thinking about this. In America, we like our ruling class. We actually romanticize them. And I'm thinking about the way that people in this country love Downton Abbey adore that show, and it's upstairs, downstairs, in which everybody gets along. Uh, And if you've seen the most recent Downton Abbey movie, there's actually a scene where Lady Mary, played by Michelle Dockery, is thinking about selling the castle and rejoining normal society, and the servants literally say, no, no, don't do it. We need you. We need your class to sort of hold us all together. And I'm thinking, this is like the inverse of Parasite. Turning our sort of rhetorical swords toward the the ruling class goes against another very strong American myth or trope, which is that of the self-made man. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you make your own kingdom, and you deserve it, and you should keep it. And that's part of our national myth. And dismantling that to look at this 1% and say, well, maybe you don't deserve that, or maybe you should be sharing it, or maybe it's not fair that you have, you know, 60% or more of the, you know, national wealth goes against really a lot of the myths that have sustained this country from from the get-go, certainly since, you know, the pioneering into the West. And yet, Mr. Bong, what makes this so marvelous is that he's found a way not to give us the numbers, the mathematics of it, but the feeling of it. The sadness in the poor family Mm -hmm. is so arresting, so piercing. I see them almost as as angry and happy to take advantage of this rich family. The ending of the movie is deeply sad. It's deeply tragic with, and it's kind of a locked box. You don't know where to go from it. Do you remember how it ends? Exactly. Yeah. And the system in Korea and lots of other places seems to be inescapable. I just mean to say the film cuts to a kind of emotional experience in a way that all the statistics about 600 billionaires owning half the property in the country or whatever doesn't manage to do. To me, that's Mr. Bong's huge triumph. Right. Well, that's, that's what art does. That's what narrative does. That's why we tell each other stories, to dramatize these social problems that, when you put them down in numbers, don't move you, or when you read them in a newspaper, don't necessarily move you. We need stories. We need stories about humans to sort of gin up our emotions. And honestly, when you're talking about the political campaign that's upon us now, the political season that's upon us, each one of those campaigns is trying to tell a story. Each one of those campaigns, each one of those candidates is trying to build a narrative of America, of who they are, of where they came from, of who we are, uh, and where we should go. And the ones who are building into that narrative a righteous anger Hmm. toward the 1%, are viewed with suspicion, certainly by the 1%, exactly. which is why I think uh, some of them are getting into the race now, but also, th- I think, by a large number of our media outlets, because it cuts against the grain of this primal American narrative of creating your own self and then earning what you've killed. Basically. The trick is breaking through uh, an imposed narrative, I think. Correct. You say storytelling is critical, but in the movie, too, these images, the visual mm-hmm. metaphors, the whole family crowded around, I don't know, the pipes, the ceiling, to make an iPhone connection. Oh, uh, my God. When they're, The only place they can get the iPhone connection is when they're literally sitting next to the toilet. This image of the whole family practically sitting on the toilet seat and lid just to keep the explosion yes. of the sewer yes. out of their apartment, the whole bowels of the earth emptying into this flood scene. <laughs> it's unforgettable. 
it takes you into the gutter because we need to go in there to see what's going on. It also takes you into the vast space of the rich people's apartment. Oh, my. That house, uh, which was built for built the movie. For the movie, yeah. You think you're in a historic architect's masterpiece, but in fact, it was designed probably by Mr. Bong. Again, the movie's about levels. The movie's about social levels, levels of power, and the levels in that, in that house, um, including levels that we don't even know are there when the movie starts, are very, very important visually uh, and Speaking thematically. Of visual tone. It's organic. Everything's made of that dark wood, that dark burnished wood, but it also feels very sterile compared to this crowded slum the poor family is living in. And again, they're literally living below ground level. And then you move into this airy, clean, sterile, quiet space, which they move into. And there's a wonderful scene when the rich family goes on a camping vacation and the poor family just takes it over and gets drunk and watches TV and uses every bit of it that they can. Coming up, the HBO series Succession that was made for hate-watching the rich and infamous at the top of our power pyramid. This is Open Source. With the film critic Ty Burr, we're noticing in a diversified media industry the piercing of a lot of old commercial and political inhibitions. We'll get to HBO's Succession serial about family power in the Trump era, but we're not done yet with the Korean film Parasite, which runs both scary and hilarious around issues of inequality. Well, I think all commercial film industries are loath to address themes that disturb and challenge viewers because they don't want to queer the sale. They don't want to... That doesn't make money. Satire closes Saturday night, all of that. Right. That's true in Korea, South Korea, which has a very, very healthy commercial film industry of, of puff, light entertainments. And it's certainly true in America where studios have been given over to franchise films and sequels mm. and as is proven by this ridiculous ongoing, quote, argument between Martin Scorsese and the Marvel Universe. You know, if you want to see humans talking to each other, you have to go to streaming television or to the art house. You want to watch superheroes beat each other up. Uh, well, you know, that's what the multiplexes are for. But I do think that commercial film industries are very chicken about addressing current themes until it's safe to do so. And a perfect example being the Vietnam War in mm. American film. So during, while the Vietnam War was going on uh, in the late 60s and at the height of the protests, mm. you had war films being made, anti-war films being made, but they weren't about Vietnam. Uh, you right. had Mike Nichols' version of Catch-22, which was set in World War II and was definitely an anti-Vietnam War movie. And you certainly had Robert Altman's MASH, which was definitely an anti-Vietnam War movie set mm. during the Korean War. Uh, it was only after we lost the war and people came home that we started to get movies about the war, like Coming Home and The Deer Hunter. Mm, fascinating. We are scared of addressing troublesome social issues uh, while they're happening. Once they're safely resolved, then we can go back and sort of stroke our chins and say, oh, wasn't that a terrible time? Certainly the same is true of the civil rights era. I do think that's somewhat ameliorated now by the sheer volume 
of outlets for media. The fact that not only do you have the studios making movies and the independent, you know, filmmakers making movies, but Netflix and Amazon and all the other streaming sites need content. And also on top of that, you have uh, the Internet and YouTube and all the other places that anybody with a cell phone can get something out Mm. there. A TikTok video could address some of these themes more directly than a Hollywood studio at this point and probably has. I mean, this is what Twitter is for. I mean, if you want to go get an ulcer, go onto Twitter, spend a day you know, just reading the outraged. And and that's where all of our anxiety and all the issues get really pummeled out Mm. in that form, but not in the commercial, profit-oriented storytelling entities that make up our popular culture, which suggests to me that we won't see the great Donald Trump movie until about 15, 20 years from now, if we're still around. Speaking of Donald Trump, but also the candor, the piercing candor of this parasite, it surfaces a nuclear dread, a dread of... North Korean attacks on Seoul that we've almost never taken as real before, urgent. Well, you know, imagine that there was nuclear warheads in New Hampshire, just over the border from us sitting here in Boston. If you watch enough Korean films, and by Korean films, I mean South Korean serious films, not just the stuff that comes from the commercial industry, you get a huge sense of malaise, of anxiety um, that's sort of buried into their narratives. I'm mm. thinking of last year's uh, Burning, which was a film made by a filmmaker named Lee Chang-dong that uh, felt like a sort of a Patricia Highsmith uh, story about a young man falling in love with a woman and losing her to a much smoother young man. But there's a level of violence going on underneath that. And the main character in that movie uh, lives on a farm uh, within hearing distance of the North Korean border and the propaganda loudspeakers, which are always sort of like blaring in the background Hmm. and giving this undercurrent of just dread throughout the movie. If you're And again, I'm projecting here because I'm not a South Korean film goer, but I would imagine if you are a South Korean film goer, you almost don't have to have that stated to understand what's fueling that anxiety. In a way, it's similar to you look at some of the films that came out of America and the more forward-thinking films of the 50s during the nuclear standoff with Russia uh, and the anxiety Mm. of the films of that era you're seeing mirrored there. Tyber, I'm so glad you mentioned Succession, the HBO series. I'm suddenly binging (laughs) on it and discovering in another dimension of pop culture, screen culture, a real penetration of issues in incredibly gripping entertainment. Family drama, but at the very top of our billionaire class, ruthless, unbelievably powerful, contentious, inside and out. But it rings true, again, as a lot of the rest of our news and political conversation doesn't. Are you following oh, these, uh, the prestige TV? I, I do where I can. I'm, I'm a working film critic, which means I'm kind of always on top of the new theatrical releases. So trying to keep up with the flood of great TV. And, and you know, in a weird way, it's a tough time to be a film critic because I honestly think that much of the creative talent in writing and directing and and acting is happening on TV now. You know, it didn't used to be that way. But because of this explosion in streaming channels that need content and they're willing to roll the dice and pay for challenging content, we're getting shows like Succession, which is, you know, for my money, it is the knife job on the Murdochs that we've been waiting for for the longest time. It's a lot of families, going back to Godfather, the Corleones, but also it could be Sumner Redstone's family. It could be the Sopranos in a certain fashion, but it's this Murdoch media emperor. It's King Lear, too. It is. And it's good. 
It's strikingly well acted and beautifully made. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it. I think the concordances to the Murdochs are are deliciously present. Not only does um, Brian Cox's character bear a resemblance, a sort of stockier version of Rupert Murdoch. He's not Australian, but he's from a poor town. Dundee. Dundee, exactly. And they oversee a right-wing news organization. And a lot of the verbiage around that is very, very similar to Fox. I think they are poking the bear quite sharply. But the performances, especially among the the three main children, the Mm -hmm. grown children on that show, are heartbreaking and, and, and enraging. And what's interesting is that when I talk to people who follow this show is that they they hate all the characters, but there's one of those siblings that they've chosen that they just hate to love or love to hate. For me, it's Kendall. For somebody else, it would be somebody else. So your your emotions are engaged. You're engaged in the struggle that they're going through to win their father's approval, which will never happen, while running this business as if they were a group of unruly children. And that's one of the pleasures of the show is that it confirms our suspicions that the people at the top, that the 1% are fools, are idiots. They may be smart at business, but they have no more ethical compass whatsoever. They're in it entirely for themselves. And that given the first chance, they will eat each other alive. And that for us is entertainment. In a weird way, it's it's an entertainment in place of actually doing something about it. <laughs> it feels like the most incisive journalism at the same time Extraordinary entertainment. Oh, very, very entertaining. There are certain shows that are you watch as part of a hive mind. I don't know if you're on Twitter. I am. It's a blessing and a curse. Uh, but to watch a show like Succession, where a lot of people I follow who are journalists like myself or cultural commentators, and just sort of every now and then glance at your phone and see people respond. It's like being in a movie theater with people you you don't see. It's like being in a big, invisible movie theater. And a great pleasure of that kind of show is experiencing it with other people and sort of gasping at the venality uh, and poor ethical Mm. choices of these characters. And I, I do want to point out one thing, you know, going back to what we're saying about putting the class conflict right there for people to address it, that show does not do it. We don't see the working class. We've got Cousin Greg, who's sort of like, you know, the schlub who somehow lucked into an executive job. There is, in the first season, there is an unlucky caterer. And there are regular people who pop up in this high-air atmosphere. But for the most part, the people who the Roy family are stamping on with their media boot are not seen, which allows us to enjoy them and enjoy the show and, you know, feel all sorts of tingly emotions, pro and con, but not get really mad. I don't know if anything in our our major media culture wants us to get mad. I think it allows us to get mad. The visuals there are striking, too. So much of that second season seems to be set on either the helicopters. Mm -hmm. They have a whole family fleet of helicopters. Or some serious jetliner, almost Air Force One, in which a lot of the both combat and drama unfolds. Yeah, wait till you get to the yacht in one of the final shows. (laughs) Right, right. Um, Popular culture, visual culture that cuts to the chase convincingly, satisfyingly, that's what fascinates me here. You know, one of the reasons we watch the show is our guilty enjoyment of all that bling that they have, all those gorgeous houses and, and all that largesse. I know, wonder, that that's, does... that's the schizophrenic nature of American popular cultures. You know, it's the Puritan, our Puritan nature and our, our um, hedonistic natures. We want to have it all and then we want to punish people for having it all. 
Thank you all for making it. We're going to be the number one media conglomerate in the world. The key here is act like a happy family. We're the Osbournes. Good, fine. Nobody here has any glaring substance abuse issues that almost brought down the company, right? Money wins. Here's to us. HBO's hit serial, Succession, is a grim, all-American reading of our homegrown oligarchy. Erin Schwartz writes about politics and pop culture for The Nation magazine, and at length recently on the bite of succession. I mean, you see these characters as morally bankrupt, being sort of almost buffoonish, like they're all kind of terrible at their job. So you can see it as the politics as being like a satire of wealth and of the lack of meritocracy in American capitalism. These are the people, these are the one percenters who are at the top who are making these large decisions about the shape of the media, about the shape of the country, and they're just terrible people who don't really deserve to be in these positions. And then you kind of realize no one deserves to be in these positions. This is like kind of a a powerful class that's just completely vacuous. But I also think the show functions on this other level where it is much more interested in its wealthy characters than in its poor characters. I do think it's like a show that is more concerned with finding sort of depth and nobility in the feelings of these terrible characters Hmm. than examining their impact on other people with less power. Erin, we're talking about the entertainment value in succession built around pretty dark picture of American condition, information, democracy. How deep does it go? I think the thing I appreciated about it is how precise and detailed the show is, even down to certain books that are on people's bookshelves. I I recognized a couple of them, like books that I have or I see people have. They have this huge list of consultants on the show, including a senior reporter at the Wall Street Journal, a former producer on Lou Dobbs Tonight, and a couple society consultants, including a wedding consultant who I think did one of the royal weddings, and Derek Blasberg, who's kind of a fixture in the Um, art and fashion community. So I think that it does get into, I don't know, the precise perversity of some of how upper class culture in America works. Watching Succession feeds a sort of power fantasy, envy of the rich. At the same time, even more, it's kind of hate watching, isn't it? The fun of seeing rich people be so ugly and mean and base, really. It has these two modes that are happening. It has this like hate watching satirical plot line where you're just seeing these people be so selfish and cruel and also just idiotic and incompetent doing ridiculous things. And then there's also this sort of plot line that sort of gets compared to King Lear often, I think. Yes. Because, yeah, because um, Brian Cox himself did play King Lear and he's playing the Lear-like figure in succession. So it sort of are sort of presented as tragic or at least real and deep enough that you can find something more than hate watching and then you find sympathy or tragedy. There's also that. So I feel like those two modes are sometimes in um, conflict with each other. Part of you is wanting to just hate watch it and say, oh, these are just buffoons. And then there's also this thing that's kind of tugging you at um, towards sympathizing with them and seeing 
their downfall and their failure to sort of transcend their worst impulses as something that is ultimately very human and very tragic. What do you take to be the audience for the show and the pleasure for that audience? Yeah, it's it's an interesting question because I have noticed it's very popular in media circles because I think people like seeing themselves reflected on television. There's a scene that appears to be in a Vice-like office, and I used to work at Vice, and it, it, I mean, I don't know how they knew this, but there's a photo on the wall in succession that is the same as a photo on the wall in the Vice office. Um, But Mm. I think beyond that, I think it has a pretty wide audience. And I think the it's appealing for people who are pretty disillusioned with the state of the world and want um, a show that kind of matches the darkness and the the sort of sense that a small group of people are making decisions that are disproportionately significant for the rest of us. And those people are not making those decisions particularly well. And those people aren't necessarily thinking about the rest of us when they choose to put something on TV or have a, I think there's a reference to the fact that uh, Waystar Royco is somehow listening in on or, or is piloting some program that allows them to like listen in on people's living rooms. Um, and that kind of thing, I think, kind of plays into almost a conspiratorial sense in like modern life. That we are listening in on the Trump living room, are we not? <laughs> yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah, I guess it goes both ways. Yeah, I think there's the sense that there, even though there's greater transparency of information in information, like you, all the transparency in the world won't help if the power imbalance is still there and the Logan Roy's and the Donald Trump's of the world can have a whistleblower, literally in both cases, expose something they do and then there are no consequences. There was a picture the other day of Erdogan's son-in-law sitting opposite Trump's son-in-law on either side of the president of Turkey. And your first outrage was, what are those kids, those overstuffed, spoiled, brat, nonsense kids doing in a serious picture? When you see it in a TV serial, you know instantly these are not good people and they're up <laughs> to nothing good. Yeah. And they're and they're like large children. They're like boy kings. I always think of Jared Kushner as, as a boy king kind of figure. Mm. Um, and then in real life, it is surprising. I mean, that I think is something funny that gets wrapped up in Trump's um, positioning of himself as a business person and politics is like a business. Something that comes with that is if it's a family firm, that means you give your sons significant political posts. Yeah, something I, I think about is um, Eamon Agalarov, who set up the Trump Tower meeting in 2015, is the son of a Russian oligarch. And in addition to getting involved in geopolitics in this funny way, also made a music video starring Donald Trump and has this uh, like kind of abortive career as a pop star. I mean, these these sons are just like such buffoons. Succession does such a lovely job of honing in on the ways that they are just children. And and you see that in, yeah, in contemporary politics as well. Erin Schwartz's other job is editing Study Hall, which reports online every week. 
on the media industry. I think the issue here, sir, is that everyone hates you. It's cloudy. It's sunny. You want to push through a massive, politically sensitive buyout, and I'm reading this over my morning cappuccino. It says your family is a horror show and it's destroying America. Coming up, back to Parasite and the art of clarifying the conversation when so many of us have lost the thread. This is Open Source. Parasite, the movie, was a blockbuster hit in Korea, a tragic comedy unveiling South Korea's own undeclared class warfare. After winning France's top prize at Cannes this year, Parasite is on its way to becoming the world's standard of candor about an equality crisis, including the U.S. version. Our guest, the film critic Ty Burr, is observing that Parasite is not a movie you'd expect to be made in the U.S.A., I would love to see a class-conscious superhero film. I think that would be delightful. You know, and in fact, when you do see class in a superhero film, and I'm thinking randomly of the second-to-last Spider-Man movie where the bad guy played by Michael Keaton was like a working class, I forget what he was, he was like a fireman or something in Brooklyn. So the bad guy was like a blue-collar guy. But otherwise, the superhero universe is completely unconcerned with class, which is exactly how... They want us, they, they don't want us to disturb us with notions of class or any of that conflict. And there is an exception to that. You know, I'm sure there are more than one exception to it. But Joker, which is out there in theaters now, is a movie that does address this, I think, in fairly blunt, not particularly nuanced ways, but certainly does tap into a discontent and taps into it in a, a sort of I don't want to say alt-right bro way, but in a way that jives and dovetails with certain angers that you'll find out there in social media. I guess I got to see it then. Um, for one thing, it's certainly notable that the Arthur Fleck character who becomes the Joker, played by Joaquin Phoenix, is mugged by and beaten up on the subway by a bunch of Wall Street stockbrokers who basically you know, are identical to the Trump sons. They fill that same sort of dramatic niche. Uh, and social niche. So there's a fury at that level. And that somehow the appearance of the Joker in the film fuels this anti-elitist, anti-wealth you know, uh, uh, rebellion that starts spilling out onto the streets of Gotham City. Mm. And again, it's, it's not particularly nuanced. It's not particularly well thought out. It just sort of happens. It's not particularly connected to any greater ideas. But it's there. It's an expression of discontent. And it's maybe, honestly... Maybe it's in those almost wordless expressions of anger and discontent that we see the real class conflict. That's the stuff that I'm saying I'm not seeing in American culture. Maybe that's where it's coming out. Exactly. You know, it's squeezing out between the cracks of a movie like Joker. Where do you see it? I think you see it in one of our other great exports, which is gangster movies and gangster sagas and mm. crime sagas. I think you see a lot of class issues in reality TV which allows us to weigh in with, with social judgment against 
people that we th- we measure our own class standing against them against mm. whether it's the Kardashians or you know whatever show we're watching uh, we think you know like to think we're better than them or you know or at the same time we might want some of what they've got whatever we have conversations around that but the class issue in gangster films again I mean it goes back to that you know great scene at the end of The Godfather where. Don Corleone tells Michael Corleone, I had great hopes for you. You know, Sonny was going to take over the family business. Fredo was was Fredo. Um, poor Fredo uh, was a child. But you, you know, I hoped that you were going to be one of the big shots, uh, that you were going to be the one, the one that's pulling the strings, Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone, and then he stops and the implication is President Corleone. Uh, but we didn't get there. And, you know, Michael says, that's okay, Pops. Uh, but there is this... One of the things fueling a lot of great American crime stories is is this desire to climb up a social rung or two or three or all of them. I think it's there in The Sopranos. It's there in Scarface, both of them. It's there in the new Scorsese movie, The Irishman, although there's other complicating factors. This, again, it's the American story. It's the striving, the striving to better yourself and what you do to yourself to better yourself and how much you have to warp yourself to better yourself and what bettering yourself means. You know, Michael Corleone betters himself, quote unquote, and is a horribly twisted human being at the end of that. And you could extend that to some of our public figures. And I'll just leave that lying there. One of the charms of succession, for my mind, was to see the Trumps in the context of film. They're villains, but they don't quite realize it, and they don't quite seem it in standard news coverage. But when you see this sort of family rule in all its vulgarity and ignorance is real, and it's dangerous, and it's wrong. I agree. I, and, and, and that is one of the lessons of succession, is just seeing the power of these, these, these grown children and the power they have over our media and over individual lives and, and, and lives of, of everybody, you know, consuming their products. Honestly, though, for my money, the most brilliant satiric portrait of the Trump sons is on Saturday Night Live, which is a show that, you know, is blows hot and often very cold. But whenever Alex Moffat and Mikey Day come on playing the Trump sons, mm. Eric and Donald Jr., that is absolute genius, and Moffat in particular as a sort of brick tamland idiot wandering in, in, in the fields of plenty is, to my mind, a, a great, great satiric portraiture of modern American idiocy. Um, and it's, you know, they show up every now every couple of shows on, on Weekend Update, and it's a joy. It's the funniest thing that's been on the show. You've both been accusing Hunter Biden of benefiting from his father's political connections, but haven't you two been doing the exact same thing? (laughs) (laughs) Colin, we'd be running the Trump organization even if Donald Trump wasn't our father. Yeah, I I don't know about that. And And it is ruthless. It is absolutely ruthless. That's the subject. The sort of pop culture that seems to paint a picture of our real condition a felt condition that cuts to the chase as news coverage and our political conversation can't seem to do. And where does the treatment of race figure in? Well, I, I think that actually is a very important point you bring up because I think a lot of the anxieties and challenges and angers that we that would go into a American-made story about class conflict and the inequalities between the haves and the have-nots 
that a lot of that energy of telling these important stories gets diverted into our own national tragedy, which is race. It gets in, diverted into telling stories of racial struggle and and um, historical, you know, uh, issues. And uh, you know, I think Twelve Years a Slave. And, I was going to say um, Twelve Years a Slave, Moonlight. I think more stories are getting out there. I think more filmmakers of color and filmmakers, you know, uh, male and female, are being able to make movies. Um, I think it's important that filmmakers of color are also being, you know, like uh, Ryan Coogler's making Black Panther, um, you know, uh, a Marvel superhero movie, which is, you know, unthinkable 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But it also means that Ryan Coogler's making movies like Fruitvale Station, um, that movies like Sorry to Bother You, which came out, uh, Boots Riley's movie came out last year, which is... hilarious satire those movies are are getting out there are getting seen again because of the streaming universe that they're being able to be seen in people's homes and just you can't get away from them which which is great and you know people who would never be able don't live within a thousand miles of an art house cinema are able to see these movies because they have a netflix subscription but i do think that a lot of movies about race in america are also about class and those two are inextricably interlinked, and you can't pull them apart easily, certainly not in a story when you have to decide what story you're going to tell. You can't pull them apart really without breaking a bunch of eggs. Um, mm. The movies that focus squarely on our class conflict and the widening divide in this country between people who have have everything and more than everything and people who are struggling to get by and struggling to, mm. you know, to, you know, working three jobs to put food on the table and still can't make it happen. Not since Black Panther have I seen a movie that everybody has to talk about and wants to talk about. Yeah, my only fear is that it is a foreign language film, which means it's subtitled, which means that it hits a wall at a certain percentage of the American population. I've worked a lot, long enough in TV and in the movies to know that people don't like subtitles. Most people don't like subtitles. They have, they have trouble with, you know, reading them. They don't want They won't watch it. Now, if, you know, somebody wanted to put out a dubbed version of Parasite, which would make my flesh crawl because, you know, I'm against dubbing in, in general. But, you know, maybe more people would see it that way. But I do think that there is... You know, as sad as as it may be, with the exception of I'm trying to think of the foreign language movies that really have achieved mass success, you know, and broken a hundred million. I mean, you know, like maybe Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, you know, is one one of the few I can think of. Life is beautiful. Neither of which put the audience through it in the Hitchcockian manner the way Parasite does. But I do think. I mean, it came out of the Cannes Film Festival. It won the top award. The buzz on it was immediate. It has been talked about all year. So anybody who really cares about movies, by which I mean cares about movies beyond whatever's available on the multiplex this weekend, sort of has to see it. It's the the movie that and, you know, one or two others of the movies this year that you have to see. You know, I, I love those conversations. And, and then people see it and start arguing about it. I, I haven't heard anybody who doesn't like Parasite. I think it's a movie that puts the audience comfortable spots. But it's so intelligent that I think the audience intuitively understands, I know why I'm here. I know why I'm being put through this. I know, and this is ringing, ringing, you know, hitting chords that make a lot of sense to me. This is connecting some dots that I know need to be connected. My feelings too, and you say it much better than I would have. We're saying wonderful things about visual storytelling. Can this 
buzz last? Well, you know, cultures go through periods of technological stasis where, you know, all, everything kind of stays the same and flux where everything's changing. And we've been in a period of flux since the invention of the Internet. You know, everything's been up in the air. Everything's been transformed. And, we st- and I, the end is not in sight. And one of the things transformed is how we tell stories and where we see them. And right now, a lot of the excitement around storytelling is around what's coming out of, you know, what we call prestige TV or, you know, the, the – and that entire format is morphing. It used TV used to be 30 minutes or 60 minutes, and it would last a season. And now we get, you know, six-episode mini-seasons or, uh, you know, shows we can binge all at once or have to follow week by week and just vast, vast range of content and approaches. It's almost too much and it actually is becoming too much because there are new streaming channels being announced this week or launching this week as we speak. And where does it stop and how much can people watch? That's a decision we actually have to make. At what point do we just draw the line and go outside, you know, and look at the stars and walk the dog? And movie going's changing as well. And, you know, honestly, as a film critic, I feel like we're no longer covering movies and, and visual content the way people watch them. I think the, the media covering these media has to change as well. Like how? We get stories from all sides these days, and it can come through our TV, and it can come through our phone, and it can come through a movie screen, and it can come through a... YouTube video, and they're not all equal, but they're all getting pieces of our time. And you have to arrange them almost in a mosaic to say, here's what's interesting this week from each different sort of shelf in the larder, if you will. I do think that because there's such a huge, vast need for content on TV, and there are entities who are willing to spend the money to fill it with content. Uh, we're just seeing stuff we've never seen before. I mean, shows like Fleabag, shows like Transparent, even some of the some of the Marvel shows. I, I you know I think uh, have been really really the, the TV shows more than the movies have been very adventurous. Watchmen on HBO now is really pushing into some very very interesting mm. area areas more so than even the original comic book. You know, and I mentioned watching Succession with the Twitter hive mind. You know, and that's fun. But it's also, you can't do that with every show and you can't do that with every movie. And, you know, because that would spoil the experience. At the same time, you've got Martin Scorsese making a three and a half hour movie with Netflix money that will be in theaters for about two weeks before it shows up on Netflix. Mm. You watch it on a big screen. Do you watch it on a small screen? Maybe, you know, maybe you just watch it wherever you can. It's a masterpiece, in my opinion. And it would not have been made by a film studio. There are good things. They're great things. I mean, you know, flux, upheaval opens the floodgates to new expressions. And yet I feel like we're almost starting to drown in content now. And also amuse ourselves to death in Neil Postman's, you know, wonderful (laughs) um, phrasing at a time when we really need to be paying attention to who's manning the controls of our government and our actual lives. Well, I was going to say, guilty question from a political reporter is, can impeachment hearings compete with that content? Well, look at the way they sell it, you know, with banners, the impeachment hearings with, you know, with crawls and music and, and you know, you got to turn it into a narrative, uh, which, you know, we always did. You, you know, you remember being around, you know, I was a teenager when Watergate happened. I was and there that, in the hearing room with you? Howard Baker and, and Norman Mailer and, and Mary McCarthy covering it with the likes of me from the New York Times. Right. And and as a as I kid watching it you know in in the pages of the Boston Globe and on TV it was we turned it into a narrative and everybody had you know had a persona everybody sort of filled a character from you know John Dean the turncoat to Wiley Sam Irvin you know the Absolutely. you know and everybody 
was a character in that movie, and we told it to ourselves because that's how we make sense of reality. And the danger in this 24-hour social media feed is that we're getting so much input, we're almost like overloaded and don't know how to turn it into a story. You know, and that's the danger in the Trump era in which he just blithely blows through expectations of what's right in governance that uh, it's hard to keep up. It's hard to figure out where to put your outrage. And, And in fact, that's to me is the drama of the impeachment hearings is how do we attach moral and legal value to what's happening, uh, what these people have done without seeming to care about what they've done. It just makes you want to know more, Ty Burr, about the real hero here, Bong Joon-ho. <laughs> How does he do it? What... We need to have him come over here and make uh, a movie about America. Why not? Why not? I think he'd do... I mean, honestly, I feel like he is already making movies about America, but they're just set in South Korea and they're in, in Korean. Watch Snowpiercer sometime. Watch Okja which is uh, about a genetically modified pig cow and his little girl who take on the entire food processing uh, and, and the way we eat and the way we think of food. That was a movie that he made for theatrical, but that it played on Netflix in this country. It's, uh, it's, it's brilliant. You connect him to Hitchcock in this composition of a film, but where is he coming from? I still don't get it. What do you mean? Where is Mr. Bong coming from in terms of his purpose and his standards. Well, he's coming from the great explosion in South Korean filmmaking, really, of the last 20 years. You know, him and his, you know, compatriot, uh, most well-known as Park Jan-wook, whose movie The Handmaiden of a couple of years ago is one of the great movies of the decade, also about class conflict set in a period setting and also fiendishly satirical as well as like more erotic and more erratically charged than anything American movies have done in years. I mean, that's, that is a dangerous, dangerous movie and, and hugely entertaining. Pacific Rim countries have a long, long, decades long history of film industries and making films for their national audiences that, you know, really, you know, have been, mm. have been effective, have been influential globally and on the American filmmakers for, you know, 30, 40 years. I mean, think of Quentin Tarantino. Uh, half of his aesthetic wouldn't exist without, you know, Hong Kong filmmakers and Korean filmmakers and Japanese filmmakers. And and I will say that um, South Korean filmmaking has sort of two schools. It's got the, you know, blatantly commercial, high calorie, low uh, protein kind of entertainment. But the filmmakers who are more daring are really daring, and they are, I think, some of the most daring and inventive and imaginative filmmakers on the planet today. Ty Burr of the Boston Globe, it is a pleasure always to read you and a joy and a privilege to gab with you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure being here. Ty Burr is admired near and far for his movie reviews in the Boston Globe. His books are Gods Like Us on movie stardom and modern fame. Also, the best of old movies for families. Open Source is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of engaging, idea-driven podcasts, including The Constant, a witty exploration of how humans tend to get things wrong. Check it out at constantpodcast.com. And check out all the Hub and Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. 
George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is going to make our movie. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.